In fact, at one point, Alan Pinkerton offered Lincoln his own revolver and Bowie knife to defend himself all on his own, say he was cornered by a bunch of, you know, people with Bowie knives. He'd at least have... People from Baltimore. <laughs> people from Baltimore. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Howdy, howdy. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, this is it. We're finishing up Abraham Lincoln this time. Well, technically, I think John Wilkes Booth finished up Abraham Lincoln, but we'll do our part. <laughs> Well, this is it for him. That's all I want to say. I want to get back to covering wizards and commies. I thought you said that Lincoln was a wizard, or did I just vividly hallucinate that? He put it in your mind with a magic spell, because yes, he is a wizard. And speaking of the paranormal, I actually watched an important documentary film in preparation for this final episode. And I'm guessing that your idea of a important documentary film is probably Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer, right? After all, it has been free on Prime. Uh, yes, that's, that's the documentary that I watched. I had no idea Abraham Lincoln seized all the silver in the northern states to fight vampires. It's a good thing he had that fiat money plan in place. What would we do without it? But speaking of vampires... Now hold your horses, George. Remember, Abraham Lincoln was American Jesus. He could do no wrong at all. So how long are we going to keep this whole running bit about him being evil or perfection incarnate or whatever? It's been like three episodes now. I'm running out of jokes. Our Hollywood contractor won't allow me to make fun of Yankees anymore. We don't have a Hollywood contractor. You're right. It's actually the Chinese government. Oh, God, not you, too. The boomers already traded away our entire country for Chinese production. Now you've sold out the podcast. I have to say, in all honesty, nothing happened at Tiananmen Square. Now let's get down to the history lab and blame Abraham Lincoln for everything. Woo! <laughs> This is it, the final episode of the Lincoln Saga. War, reconstruction, assassination. Another great turn in the wheel of time that would set America off on a new journey, in a new direction, toward a dark time known as the modern world. So, George, now that we're going to be done with Lincoln forever, if you could say anything to Abraham Lincoln before he started the Civil War, what would it be? Um, don't do it. He should have been, he should have invested more time into the mustache. I think like the beard is fine, but like he, he's really slacking on the mustache front, especially when you compare him to other, you know, figures from the civil war. Like I think everything would have gone much better if he'd had a very impressive mustache. And if he was one of those poor damned souls who can't grow a proper mustache, then honestly, what business did he have leading the country? This is true. They should have had Stonewall Jackson in the lead. He had the biggest beard of them all. Or did he? Were there no, bigger beards? Wasn't. Oh, they were, they were definitely bigger beards. The beards of the Civil War are seriously very intimidating. I think you can only grow one if you're being blasted with musket balls. Probably. There's probably something about the saltpeter in the air that really stimulates the follicles. <laughs> 
there is something going on because some of those beards, they look like tree trunks grown out of people's faces. Yep. I, I stand in so awe. So if, uh, <laughs> if you could say anything to old, honest Abe, what would it be? Um, I would say, you don't exist, and neither does the Republican Party. This is all a sham and made up to cover up that dinosaurs are fake or something. <laughs> he would probably that, think I'm insane. Would he be wrong? But No. <laughs> But he's Abraham Lincoln, so I don't care. Computer, once again, will you please, 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 are you please, will you please bring up Abraham Lincoln? There we go again. So, George, if you would be so kind, would you please describe the image below? I can do my best, but I don't know if you, uh, if you know this, but I'm not entirely sure that's Abraham Lincoln. Uh... Are you sure? Because he looks tall and bony and he's got a little little patch of hair under his chin. No? I mean, he does. He does have that. I, I, I give you that. He's a similarly sort of skinny looking person uh, who appears to be dressed in clothing from the same era. Um, I think he has slightly better hair than Lincoln. You know, I'll, I'll just describe him and then we'll see if we can talk about who it is. So, yes, yeah, so we've got a very, a very tall, lanky sort of person. Uh, dressed in very nice period attire. It looks like a sort of silken vest, which is excellent choice, and a, mm. a long coat. A, one of those sort of weird, like, silk cravat sort of ties that you saw in the 19th century. And the upright collar. I do love the upright collar. Mm -hmm. um, however, this gentleman doesn't seem to have a beard like Lincoln does. Oh, um, I didn't even notice that. He does have, as I said, I think better hair than Lincoln. He's got a, a pretty impressive uh, side part on the left-hand side and a rather nice flowing mane, one could even call it. Um, very prominent brow. Exceptional jawline, I've got to say. Like, very strong jawline. Yeah, you could, like, like shred cheese with that. I was going to say, you could, you, could, you could measure that with a protractor. Like, very <laughs> strong jawline. Um, quite a prominent brow, piercing eyes. Um, and he's got his hand on a pile of books, which I always use books as props in my photos as well, because it tricks people into thinking I can read. Um, <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, this is Jefferson Davis. <laughs> yes, it's Jefferson Davis. So you might be wondering why this got mixed up in the computer. Because they're skinny. Um, no, because there's a conspiracy theory that Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln were the same person. <laughs> Wait, for real? This is a yes, thing? Yes, for real. <laughs> We're not going to discuss it at all, but... You, can, you can't just say something like that and not, like, fill me in. Well, they basically believe uh, a form... That all tall, skinny people are all avatars of the same person? Basically, but it... <laughs> I wouldn't know because I'm not a tall, skinny person. But, no, I think the theory just goes that the Civil War was uh, largely staged by the same evil people who wanted to destroy America... So they made up a character called Abraham Lincoln, and they made up a character called Jefferson Davis, and then they just sort of let the public go where they wanted to go and start a war. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> okay. Um, I can't say I've ever heard that, which is surprising, because there are honestly very few, like, 
wacky theories that I've not been exposed to, at least in passing. Yeah, no, that one was a weird one. Um, Though it's kind of funny because the point I was trying to make on the last show was that, I think it was on the last one, or maybe, maybe it was just discussed on the Patreon call, but that Abraham Lincoln, whether or not he had a human flesh walking component, he his entire character was um, essentially caricatured by the Republican Party and the Wide Awakes. So I was suggesting that he's fake in a way, which most politicians are. I mean, honestly, aren't. Yeah, most politicians and, of course, many historical figures. Of course, of course. But anyway, I do have another picture of Lincoln. I feel scroll down. In fact, there is two. Yes. Um, oh, wow. You made a, you made a meme? I did. <laughs> wow. This is finally finally entering the, the millennium here. So we have two pictures of Lincoln, one which I would guess is pre-presidency and one is um, late presidency. Yes. Um, can't really say post-presidency because he was dead. Um, spoiler alert, sorry. Um, so on the left we have Lincoln looking, well, still very, very skinny, but fairly robust and healthy looking, uh, very healthy, shining head of hair on him, uh, no beard, no beard, which that is a drawback, Mm. but in general looking pretty strong and robust, and then we have a photo with pretty much the exact same angle and distance which is late war, and, like, he honestly looks like he's aged 25 years. Like, yeah. there's a sort of hollowness in his eyes and his cheeks. He's got a lot more wrinkles. His hair does, well, still pretty thick. It doesn't it doesn't just look nearly as, as healthy and vibrant. Mm-hmm. Nor quite as well, well attended to either. He definitely looks kind of the worse for wear. Yeah, that's for sure. Or that he, or that he just got up in the morning. Yeah, I mean, but he, you know, photographs took a while back then, so presumably this was him looking his best. <laughs> um, which is to say, he looks like, I don't know, he looks he looks like himself if he got a little bit of Yoda genes stuck in his DNA or something. I mean, he's, yeah, he he's not looking good. <laughs> so, anyway, but hey, you know, he's aging like a president, right? So... What do you what do you say we just uh dive right into this and finish him up finish him off you might say <laughs> oh, oh dive right in morbid I suppose suppose we can do that yes so let's begin in the last episode you suggested we start with a couple of political cartoons about Lincoln and I thought that was a good call uh, it's important to dis- to understand the role of perception in the coming battles Lincoln would face because public relations wasn't a science just yet, at least not officially. That wouldn't happen, of course, until Master Wizard and father of PR Edward Bernays hit the scene and turned America into a meme, but we'll cover him potentially at another time. And since we're not talking about Edward Bernays and the industrialized wizardry industry, just yet, let's uh, let's look at some proto-wizardry in a couple of comics from Harp Week. Remember, Lincoln was is one of the- Is that a publication? It is a website. Oh. With, that is specifically designed for cartoons about Abraham Lincoln, believe it or not. That's the whole focus of the site. So anyway, remember, Lincoln was one of the first presidents to achieve the office by embodying a heroic figure. Um, and by that, I mean, <laughs> he wasn't there because he was particularly good at 
being the president. He was there because he had the right energy around him. He was in the right place at the right time. He had just the right character, just the right gumption, just the right goal, you know, to, to become the president. So he's, he's like, uh, people voted for a meme, basically, is what I'm trying to say. So without further ado, let's examine some of these cartoons that were attempting to harness this energy. And we looked at the first one last time. Uh, this is not the first time you're seeing this one. I was going to say, it does look somewhat, somewhat familiar. Yes. So perhaps you'd like to describe what we're looking at, and maybe we could... Well, I don't know if we should read these. <laughs> the captions might, are pretty offensive. I mean, I'll do my best to describe this, like, 140p image. <laughs> you need to get, get my bifocals on here. <laughs> so we have a abolitionist, a slave, Abraham Lincoln, who is labeled as King Abraham, and a bloomerite. A bloomerite? I'm not entirely sure. The What I know is Bloomerite is they were early sort of suffragette people who wear, wore big puffy pants called Bloomers oh. and bicycled around, and that's why they were called Bloomerites. And I guess that kind of on the right of the image, that might be a woman in big puffy pants. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. So I'm not entirely sure how she fits into the... But looking the at the joke, though, if well, what is the joke? If you had to guess, um, it seems the joke seems to be that Abraham Lincoln doesn't actually care about the slaves. Mm -hmm. The ab the abolitionist is attempting to apparently have this slave appointed as I like that minister. Text is unclear and envoy extraordinary to the whole court of Haiti. Yeah, and. That Abraham says, my friend, really, I cannot accommodate you just now. I remember a joke. And then the Bloomerite interrupts him to say, great king, this is a better joke than you can tell. The joke is contraband. Yeah, the humor's kind of missing me on this one. I'm not entirely sure what the, yeah, what the, uh, what the, the humor is here. Also, is that a rabbi in the back? Yes, it's a rabbi in the background. Oh. And what appears to be a babushka or half of a babushka on the left. Um, it appears that the, the point of this comic is to show that Abraham Lincoln is attracting all of the minority popularity, one might say. Um, would that be fair? Probably. As, as I said, I'm not entirely, I don't, I'm not entirely sure I get this. I think this might be one of those things where you kind of had to be there. Yeah, but at the same time, like, it, it would appear to me that... The joke is, look at Abraham Lincoln and his crazy fans. They're all weird and not like us. Wouldn't you say? That's could be at least yeah, part that, of it. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And you can see in his face, he doesn't even look like he's sure he wants to be there. Um, But he's attracted, you know, I, I think you might call this uh, minorities, one might say. Yes, yes. I think so. Yeah, so basically saying that he's playing to small groups and not the larger population as a whole and as a, and they there is a plenty of documentation where um slaves especially viewed abraham lincoln as a kind of moses in fact when he died there were people who said that you know the moses of the slave has died um but anyway so that's the first one do you want to go down to the second one it's a little more controversial <laughs> I see the second one we have Lincoln with what appears to be a Jewish money lender. Mm -hmm. um, ah, yes. 
In fact, he is helpfully identified as Shylock in the old Merchant of Venice. Yes. Um, no, Shylock, we did not come about the loan. We have money enough and to spare at home. But we thought, since our English brethren had come to be ruled by such as you and your hirelings yonder, that we had better keep an eye on you. So I guess this is sort of Lincoln protecting America from the vagaries of international finance. Yes, yes. And it's interesting to see all of this in these old comics, because this one is making Lincoln look like a chad for turning down international finance or whatever this is supposed to represent. Um, you know, he, they've masculinized this the hell out of this character, um, this drawing of Lincoln. They're, they really do have sort of, yeah, Lincoln is a giga chad in this one. Yeah, he's got a thick neck and he's kind of scowling at this, you know, this man who's holding out his hand and leaning on a cane. Um... Yeah, so as you can see, again, the the stuff was real on the nose back then. You know what I'm saying? I wonder saying? when this one is from. Um, they have the dates on all of them, but I didn't I didn't think to copy them. Because I'm guessing this one's probably pre-war. Yes. Because if it was during the war, I think there would have been they would have found some way to include Judah Benjamin in this. Who's that? Judah Benjamin was the Secretary of War of the Confederacy, and he was Jewish. So I'm, I'm I'm certain if this had been during the war, they would have found a way to include him. Almost definitely, almost definitely, because yeah, he was the Confederate point. Secretary of War. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Um, I think he was Secretary of War. He was he was one of the top. Almost certain it was Secretary of War. He was one of the top ministers of Jefferson Davis's government. Let's see, American politician, lawyer, United States Senator from Louisiana, cabinet officer, and let's see. Oh, he escaped to. He went to England after the war. That's interesting. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Especially since, you know, England is brought up in that comic. That's true. That's also true. Um, but anyway, so I guess the point of including these two, and these are probably two of the least offensive ones I could find. Um, it was just a different time. And in times of turmoil, you know, all of these, all of this stuff just gets brought up again. So let's just leave it at that. So basically, these cartoons exhibit some classic themes in American politics. Um, suspicion surrounding, at this time anyway, suspicion surrounding non-English tribes such as the Irish, Slavs, Gypsies, and Jews, etc. There was a focus on economics, race baiting, portrayals of other cultures as monkeyish, and being exploited for their votes by a person posing as their white savior. All very interesting stuff, and it's it's difficult to read uh, to read unless you're you're willing to just like put all of this modern angst about it aside. Things were different back then, right? And it's very, very hard for um, for a lot of people to simply understand that and not get, not be able to learn anything from it because they're too angry. You know what I mean? But anyway, speaking of race, since it's become a main focus of politics today, I have to say I don't really see it as a new thing may be exaggerated in this hour of American history, but the race thing really does continually lurk in American politics throughout the nation's lifetime. If you, if you examine the history of American elections, people just now and then start slinging racial shit around. Back in the day, like I said, there was a suspicion about Irish people, Germans, Eastern Europeans, people arguing about who was qualified as white or not. I made a joke about that on the last show, but it turns out that's exactly what it was like. And really not much has changed. Well, I mean, considering the fact that you have prominent figures currently in this country, like I saw one member of Congress 
calling for all Russian students to be expelled from American universities. What has simply changed is, you know, which races it's currently acceptable to want to have blanket actions against. It's really ugly, man. It's really, really ugly. And I don't mean it like... I don't mean it like, oh, think of the children. I mean, like, come on. Like this... Anyway, it's just, it just appears to be something America's gonna keep doing, and it, it frustrates me, but there you go. The Anglo-Americans, however, clearly had some kind of upper hand. Um, there are really only a handful of presidents in American history that weren't of English descent, such as Martin Van Buren, who was Dutch and English. Fun fact. Um, yes. Van Buren was the last president before uh, Donald Trump who had a parent whose first language wasn't English. Really? Yep, Van Buren's mother, um, or father, was a first language was Dutch, and Trump's mother's first language was Scots Gaelic. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yep. And so, yeah, she he was the first president since Van Buren who had a parent whose first language wasn't English. I found that fascinating just because, yeah, that's a long gap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, like... Pretty much everybody's English if you're president, or at least they got a little bit of English in there. <laughs> like, even Obama might have been our first black president, but his mother was of English descent. Which, if you look at the way people talked about who was whitest back in the day, would probably qualify him as being more white than that filthy Irishman Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I really wish I was joking, but that's kind of how it was back then, wasn't it? Oh, I was waiting for your confirmation. Oh, I was drinking coffee. Oh, okay. That's good. Consider it granted. Okay, great. <laughs> I had to turn off the uh, the heat in my apartment so that the uh, thing didn't make noise when it kicked on and off, so it's cold. So I'm just huddled here. I could get you a snuggie. a warm yeah. cup of coffee. <laughs> in the have dark. You, have you ever... Speaking into the box that's holding my microphone. Uh, just pondering the orb. Pondering the orb. Yeah. Now, this is this stuff is all very uncomfortable for me to talk about, so I'm going to kind of move past it if I can, but <clears throat> these comics are illustrative of, of just how people thought back then. And let's not even call it race. It was more like tribalism, you know? There were a lot of, lot of new immigrants uh, from European countries who, you know, didn't speak Ang English. Like you mentioned, your Pennsylvania Dutch, big, big uh, culture out there that didn't speak English for the longest time, at least not as a first language. But there are other larger considerations, in my opinion, when it comes to who gets elected. Um, which is to say, I think race and tribes definitely contributing factor to why a person might win an election. But I think there's a bigger one than that, and once you see it, it sort of dissolves the other questions. Your race might help get you through the door, but it's not going to turn you into a legend. Um, so let's talk about what this factor might be, shall we? Because it's a big one, and I don't want to get caught up on the little shit. It's called charisma. You might recall that the president's preceding Abraham... That's what I always put my points into in RPGs. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I know I do. I want to be friendly with people. So you might recall that the president's preceding Abraham Lincoln don't really have the same vibe to them. You've got George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and other founding fathers who took the presidency because they had accomplishments, or they were there when the... When the, you know, the, they were writing the documents and forming the, the, the government that was going to be America... They were attached to the idealism and the war. Um, they were involved in the politics since the very beginning of the United States and knew the system because they made the system. 
Lincoln was a little bit more like Trump or Obama, democratically elected because of their charisma, their ability to move people to tears or make them laugh or connect with people's hearts. Um, this, of course, could only be a major factor in an egalitarian democracy where everybody's vote counts the same and everybody gets to vote, including dead people. <laughs> that wasn't very good. No, that was bad. It's a, a, cl a classic Chicago reference. For what it's worth, every person we've covered on this show has voted in an American election. <laughs> um, or voted in the last one. Okay, this isn't landing. <laughs> The office was devolved into a spot for the right kind of person, not like the most qualified, just the right man for the time. And with the expansion of democracy and voting rights, the office began to reshape from something like president of a board, voted in by board members, to team captain in a capture the flag game. The presidency became more of a mascot leadership role than an actual hands on the wheel running the country spot. It had to in exchange for expanded voting rights. Now, when you ask your average normie who they voted for, they'll tell you. And if you ask why, they'll usually say something like, he's gonna save the country, or he's not the other guy, or we need blank in the office right now. You don't typically get logical or rational answers. You get energy answers. People vote for the cool kid. And Abraham Lincoln was definitely the cool kid, which is why most of you listening don't even know who Abraham Lincoln ran against in the election. You might think that he ran against Stephen Douglas, and he did. But he also ran against John C. Breckinridge and John Bell, two candidates that did not oppose slavery. We don't remember them because they don't have energy. This sounds out there, but trust me. <laughs> so while it appears that the 1860 presidential election came down to the slavery question, I think it was more about who had the most energy around them. Because the other guys were so lukewarm and ho-hum and, oh, this slavery will go away someday, God willing. And Lincoln was like the first guy to tear his shirt off in an anime duel. <laughs> it was like, it's going today. Right? Because Abraham Lincoln's platform was anti-slavery full stop. The entire Republican Party was focused on it. I just got a text from Neil. Say hello. <laughs> Hi, Neil. Uh, so, the entire Republican Party was focused on anti-slavery. The other three had nuanced views about the issues, with Breckinridge taking a non-interventional approach with the issue, focusing on states' rights, etc., and Bell also being kind of hammy about it. Douglas, of course, was also anti-slavery, but he didn't want to fight to end it, hoping instead that it would work itself out over time and with the careful process. These three other candidates successfully divided the meh voters, allowing the Republicans with their fierce anti-slavery position to sweep up the votes needed to put Lincoln into office. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean that's that's simply how democracy tends tends to work. Is if your platform can be reduced to a slogan or a meme, it'll work. Mm -hmm. If you have a nuanced position, you can't you can't get people excited about nuance. Like, you know, say what you will about Trump, but the fact that his whole campaign was able to be boiled down into the simple phrase "build the wall" True. was a political masterstroke. It is. It is. And like, you don't need, oh, yes, we're going to reduce illegal immigration by blah, 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 blah. I'm already asleep. Mm -hmm. But simply just repeating, build the wall. That is something people can latch on to. It's wizardry. It's PR. You get it down to really simple, stupid shit. Because politics, in especially in a democracy, because it works in different kinds of systems differently, obviously. But especially in a democracy like we have today... You want to get as many of those minds on your side and going for you as you possibly can. And you're not going to do that with a nuanced position. 
not because, you know, not necessarily because, oh, the dumb people, they can't accept anything except for build the wall or hope and change. It's because those things travel quickly because they're like a text message. It's just a teeny tiny little bit of data that gets the point across and it just goes from there. So anyway. Oh, excellent. I've just gotten a winter wind advisory. Oh, uh, be careful. You, you might blow away. Yeah, as I was... I mean, the, win the winter part, I was driving, we had a big snow last night, and I was driving around, and the snow had been blowing in just the right way that it filled up the traffic lights on one of the, ba on one of the major roads. Wow. So, like, the if you looked really closely, you could kind of see which one the light was sort of glowing through, but if you weren't looking closely, you could not see the actual traffic lights if they were red, orange, or green and so people were just flying through red lights i'm honestly amazed i didn't die on my way to the grocery store today jeez <laughs> that's, that's pretty bad when it's snowing sideways um but anyway so lincoln campaigned for years all over the country giving lectures accepting invites to major events where he championed the high ground moral side of the issue with legendary energy and sheer force of will Everywhere he went, he was spreading his message. People wrote articles about the man, who would, about the, this guy who was going to end the scourge of slavery. Thousands attended his speeches, read transcripts that were passed around, songs were being written, images of freedmen graciously accepting a new free life began to appear in all of the papers. The country really was changing, and Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party was surfing this absolute tidal wave of support like Lilo and Stitch in a hurricane. So this caused the Southern Democrats, who again were dealing with different problems, like we discussed in the last episode, to seethe like crazy. The dumb masses just didn't understand the nuances, the issues, the mountains of intricacies in disentangling the nation from this slavery problem. If only they could see what we have to deal with down here. Why can't those Yankees see that this isn't a realistic way to end slavery? Why can't they see that it would be dangerous? Why? Well, it didn't matter. Because Chadbraham Lincoln was just going to go for it. Consequences be damned. He was absolutely the dominant candidate out of all of them. And he may have been wrong. He may have been unrealistic. He may have heard every rational argument in the world. But this legendary energy did not care one way or the other. In the words of famous historian Sam Hyde, Abraham Lincoln was an invincible shining knight of the future. And I'm not... Isn't that the guy who did 9-11? <laughs> It's my first Sam Hyde joke. I can pat myself on the back for that. Um, no, so this this is the thing. is like, Abraham Lincoln was more than a man, but less than a god. And you may, have, you may hate the guy, you may love the guy, but the reality is only a person with this kind of force, um, this kind of, this kind of, you know, this kind of sheer uh, vibrancy around him can create this amount of controversy, right? So people had like a, either a guttural, disgusted reaction with Abraham Lincoln or they couldn't get enough of him. And that sounds like somebody who was riding the tidal wave of something, right? We've seen it before. Now, the problem with energy is that it really is just an emotional force. And emotional forces, when played up to their maximum, well, they get people and groups of people into a state of detachment, almost like a berserker. Um, it gets people killed, and when people snap out of it, they're usually sort of deflated. 
Um, I'm sure Freud or the Cloudbuster Wilhelm Reich or some other such energy wizard would attribute it to a sort of sexual pathology, but I'm also not sure they would be wrong about that. Um, this is the kind of guy who has women swooning over him. Uh, that's the character they're building for Lincoln in the press and with the Wide Awakes and the Republican Party, that they're just harnessing this energy. And I find it ironic that Lincoln gave no actual official campaign speeches, um, but the Republican Party was so energized that they did it all for him. The Wide Awakes, um, which we mentioned on the last show, they wrote a song for him. They were a youth movement um, that wrote more than one, but definitely one big famous song about him, Honest Old Abe. But I actually don't know much about this. Can you talk a little bit more about this group? The Wide Awakes? Yeah. Um, so basically they were people who were... Um, young people especially who fell in love with this whole idea of anti-slavery, uh, pro-Lincoln, pro-Republican party, um, and they called themselves the Wide Awakes because they believed they had been awakened, in a way, to something, to some higher truth that Lincoln was also on, right? So what is this, like Lincoln, Hitler youth? Pretty much. Ah, yes, Lincoln youth. <laughs> The Littler Youth. <laughs> I mean, they were nicer than the Hitler Youth. <laughs> I think. Anyway, so during the 1860... That's what someone from Illinois would say. <laughs> during the 1860 election, speakers would go around talking about how slavery had to go, and they would basically tie this into sermons and stuff like that. And then they would connect it to Lincoln, using his childhood story of poverty, and portray him as an unpolit unpolished, non-politician, man of the people who just said what was on his mind because he felt like it was right or true. Which, of course, we could compare that to Obama and Trump. These are energy candidates. And we're going to be done talking about the election because as soon as it's over, we're right into a war. Um, but this is energy. This is why I call Abraham Lincoln a wizard, and it's why he, he brought up such ire from people who didn't like him. But also adoring support of people who did. A little bit like um, a Jesus, you might say. So Lincoln won every state in the North and lost every state in the South. Um, the country was now clearly divided by color coding on the little map they put on Wikipedia, which is always a bad sign. <laughs> he also took California and Oregon, which again, we talked about that in the last episode. They were basically new voter bases. Um, before Lincoln even took the office, the Southern states began to write up articles of secession because the energy was the opposite down there. Um, as Lincoln traveled to Washington, Alan Pinkerton, the founder of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, was with him for protection. <laughs> it was a good thing for Lincoln, too, as a crowd in Baltimore was dotted with men armed with Bowie knives, ready to stab the president-elect right on the train platform. Well, I mean, that's just Baltimore. It's still <laughs> that way. Well played. In fact, at one point, Alan Pinkerton offered Lincoln his own revolver and Bowie knife, to defend himself all on his own, say he was cornered by a bunch of, you know, people with both, you know, I've seen at least have, people from Baltimore, people from Baltimore. <laughs> yes. Um, but they decided that it, they decided against arming Lincoln because it would look bad for an incoming president to walk into Washington, DC. armed. <laughs> on the other hand, I think that'd be the best thing a president had ever done. Oh uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, when President Terry Crews from Idiocracy strolls in with his saw machine gun, that's when you know you've got a president. <laughs> anyway, so I, I think not arming the president was the right call. 
Um, because a president-elect being prepared to fight his way into the office it would appear to be a bad start for the man who just won the presidency on the grounds of being the moral vote. As far as PR goes, however, it backfired. Lincoln not making his scheduled stop in Baltimore and just kind of sneaking through made him look like a coward. There was one article in particular written about him that directly questioned his masculinity. <laughs> this is no man. He didn't walk into the White House with a gun. <laughs> But this was sort of... This isn't what the Founding Fathers intended. Not at all. <laughs> but this was sort of all according to the Lincoln script. He was a wily, slippery fellow and would be portrayed this way by people who didn't like him throughout the war. So as you can see from these examples, the situation was very hot indeed. Lincoln knew this and tried to assuage the anger coming from the South with more wizardry. Word magic, you might say. Um, the following is perhaps one of, the, one of his most famous quotes, which was directed at those who saw him as a fraud, a liar, a slippery little weasel of a man who had basically cheated his way into the office. Lincoln said to the, his southern countrymen, We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. How nice. Yes, very nice, very moral. <laughs> but the thing about moral deference in the face of a raging nation is that it often has the opposite of the intended effect. It might work, pe it might work on people who have room for sympathy, but it absolutely does not work at all for people who are straight fed up. General Sherman saw Lincoln as unaware of how bad things actually were and tried to warn him that any action that he, any action that could be seen as aggression toward the South would be seen as aggression toward the South. But Lincoln repeatedly downplayed the dangers of a coming war and seemed to believe that simply fortifying defenses and waiting would be the best move. It was not. I mean, in, in fairness... Sherman wasn't exactly a person the president would be eager to take advice from, because at that point, he wasn't really anybody yet. Yeah. Like, I think he was the, uh, wasn't he the head of a college and just kind of showed up in D.C. when Lincoln was elected and was like, let me give you advice. Could have been. I didn't look into Sherman that deeply, but you probably know more Yeah, than I'm pretty sure this is before he's really a, uh, that notable of a figure. Fair enough, fair enough. And yet, he was still in contact with the president and telling him, hey, you better be careful. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it was easier to be in contact with the president when there were only like 400 people in the United States. 400 people? <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway. It's like, it's, it's amazing though when you read like, you know, stuff that happened. I mean, by this point, it's not as much, but really prior to, you know, the Civil War and whatnot, like, it's like people went to Washington and they, well, they had delivered a letter to the president. It's like you could just... You could just go and like, hey, I brought this cake for the president. It's like, oh, that's nice. I guess that's true. You could actually just like, you know, have some close interaction with the president that's not scheduled like eight years in advance and you're not a head of state. And That is true. That is true. It is hard to, it is hard to like understand that the country was, I mean, literally smaller and. Literally smaller. And compact. of course, people didn't travel nearly as much since. You know, didn't have cars and whatnot. And so, like, the president wasn't constantly, you know, he didn't have 24 hours a day already all planned and booked up. And people, like, 
could get in to like have a quick word with the president, which is just crazy to think about. It is crazy to think about, especially these days when, you know, the presidency and all our higher politicians are basically inaccessible to normal people. Um, exactly. And, you know, that's definitely a symptom of the size of the country, but also, you know, um, the situation that we live with now, uh, as in, in an international, you know, high-speed travel, instant communication kind of way. Um, it is it is interesting how government hasn't really... It's changed... Uh, it's changed mostly by the number of people, the speed of communication, the speed of transportation, and all that stuff. And yet the structure uh, stays largely the same. It's very, very, very interesting. Got this old... Um, this, this old... Uh, hierarchical structure right next to another one today where you know you got technocracy and all of that stuff so it's hard to know who really has the power which is you know um, to a broader point i think that's why presidents these days in this kind of world have to be really good wizards uh if they're going to get any support at all because people just find themselves like oh well let's see the government doesn't fix the potholes uh the government builds really shitty public buildings the government smells weird and sends me letters by snail mail where Jeff Bezos can, you know, download a 3D model of a coffee pot in my phone so I can see what it looks like on my counter before I order it, you know. Um, but that's, a, I guess that's a broader conversation. So let's get back to the script, or the not script, sorry. The veil slips. The southern... <laughs> The southern states uh, were really, really done with this crap. They didn't like Lincoln at all. Um, they're seceding from the Union very rapidly, and this is not a good look for the string being stranger. Union military forces uh, were ordered by this new southern authorities to vacate the premises and go back to Yankee Town. Uh, this was particularly important at ports, where northern forces had all their boats and things. Lincoln was adamant that if there was to be a war, it would not be the Union that would draw first blood. This was keeping in line with the moral character he and the Republicans were portraying about him. In my opinion, Lincoln knew any further provocations against the South would eventually invite a response, so he passive-aggressively passive kept stirring shit until people snapped, at which point he would have the justified freedom to strike back and never stop. Does that sound like something you would agree with? Ah, yeah, on the whole, I think so. Mm -hmm. Good, good. Because you know, you you live in Civil War land, right? We, <laughs> um, you're in the area. I mean, roughly, yeah. 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 So this justification came with the rumblings at Fort Sumter. Northern forces had been ordered to leave Charleston, South Carolina, and they did, kind of. They picked up their gear and dumped it all in a little place called Fort Sumter, a massively armored and armed fortress of death, which is to say Fort Sumter was still being worked on at the time and wasn't super well stocked. Uh, the commander of this fort sent a request for a supply drop from Yankee Central Control up in Washington so they could dig in and prepare for conflict. The request, the request was answered positively, which was viewed by the Confederates as an act of war. So they shelled Fort Sumter and defeated the Union forces. That is a really, really, really commercial-sized version of a much, much larger thing. It sounded like you were going to say something. Um, what was I going to... Oh, I think I was just going to mention, so I've been... When you were talking about Fort Sumter's, yeah, this massively armored and armed fortress of death off the <laughs> off the water from Charleston. It's... That was a... This time period is kind of weird because it's when forts had were really no longer being actually 
used that much. They were no longer a sort of decisive military thing in almost all circumstances, you know, forts. Um, but that sort of the actual practices hadn't caught up to that reality. So they were still like building forts. Like around this time is when they built the largest brick structure in the entire Western Hemisphere, which is called Fort Jefferson. And it was built um, off the coast of Florida on a little island. It's a 16-acre brick fort that covers pretty much the whole island. Good Lord. Um, it has hundreds of cannons. It's massive, and it was literally never... it. None of its guns ever fired a single shot because war just didn't really use forts that much anymore. So it was never, never really put into actual use. They just built this absolutely massive brick fort off the coast of Florida. Um, I think it was finished during the Civil War, I'm pretty sure. Hmm. Um, this is huge. I'm just looking at pictures of it. <laughs> Yeah, and it was never, it was never, they, they used it as a, for prisoners of war, as a sort of overflow, um, to sentence people to there, but it was never actually used as, like, a fort, and it's the largest brick structure in the entire hemisphere. Wow. I would love to go here. <laughs> I know, right? That actually would be a cool thing to go. It's kind of, kind of far, like, if you see on the map there, it's, like, really far from the coast of Florida. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's that's super cool, man. I've never heard of this. Wow. Well, thanks for adding that. That's that's awesome. Um, yeah. So like these sorts of yeah sea forts are still like something people are taking very very seriously, even though they're not at this by this point actually generally doing very much in wars. Yeah, which kind of yeah, it's an interesting thing to contrast against the next point I was going to make about what Lincoln did after Sumter. Um, and uh, the defeat there. Um, so Lincoln responded by ordering a whole bunch of units to saddle up and secure what fortresses they could across the now fractured land, presumably so that they would have bases of operation for, you know, this coming conflict. Anti-unionist sentiment was so strong, the soldiers that were headed to the new areas of the conflict would frequently get mobbed by angry civilians who all had different reasons for thinking the whole thing was bullshit. Um... And, you know, who can blame them? This energy is now getting swept up into a tidal wave of war. And I would, personally, I would be one of those people who was really mad too. Like, we don't need to kill each other. Just don't do it. Oh my gosh. But it was, you know, the public energy was already there. And Lincoln was ready for this. So once this war thing took off, Lincoln immediately became basically like an authoritarian nut job. Uh, and some would say that's an exaggeration. But in the space of a few months... Lincoln blockaded all suspected Confederate ports, suspended habeas corpus, and began rounding up suspected sympathizers to the I don't love Lincoln cause. Uh, in the North, lots of people were cool with this, of course. In the South, they were very, very much not. Um, states kept declaring their disinterest in the Abraham Lincoln Mug Club, and Lincoln just kept going. There were factions within his own party who turned on him, people who hated Lincoln for making this whole thing about abolition, and people who hated Lincoln for not speeding up abolition enough. Nothing had changed, except now there was a war going on. So, I mean, what, what's your what's your take on the beginning of the war? Um, did Lincoln have this thing in his pocket? Was he ready for this, or what do you think? Well, 
I guess that's an incredibly broad question. I think one of the main issues that's very important in the early war is they underestimated just how reliant they were. Because, yes, the North was more industrialized, more populated. They underestimated just how important the core veteran officers was going to be because the South had, for decades leading up to the war, had really had an outsized share of the officer corps were from the South. Um, Most of the officers who'd won the Mexican War were from the South. And the South had just sent proportionally more people to the military academies and whatnot. And so I think they sort of underestimated just how important having a really good trained officer corps was. And when the Civil War started and a very large amount of the officer corps went with their home states in the South rather than with the federal government, Mm. you kind of had a period where the Union was having to play catch up because even though they had the men, they had the equipment they didn't have enough good officers to lead the men. And as a result, that's why the early days of the Civil War, you really did see a lot of these Confederate victories is because even with inferior um, industrialization and less population, the South in the beginning really did have just better access to better officers. And that's really important. And the North kind of underestimated just how much of an advantage that would be. Right. And Here's another broad question. I'll, I'll try to. I like broad questions. Um, basically, I look. I look at this, and the the face of this is that the goal of the Union is to abolish slavery, um, to fight for the freedom of people in the South, and that sort of thing. Like that's the that's the nice version. But what would you say aside from that was the Union's main actual objective here? Self preservation. You think so? Yeah, it was all about preserving the union. Okay, and that's what I would say is the single single biggest issue. And they couldn't um, and they couldn't just go their own way because they had to bring the South with them for some reason. Because once the precedent is set that somebody can leave, other people are at a certain point going to want to pick up their toys and go home too. Um, you know, say you're a a very rich area in the north and you feel that you're kind of being bogged down by poorer areas around you and if you were independent you wouldn't have to be sort of paying the way of less productive regions sure and so i think what you would have seen is if the precedent was set that people could leave and get away with it you would have had other movements in different parts of the north not wanting to bring the baggage of less productive areas along with them wanting to take all their their resources and wealth and keep it sure and so and i mean the south leaving was already a big thing in that regard because of how much agriculture was in the south the north had enough agriculture to get along obviously but like the cotton in the south was a huge thing um it was of course one of the main sources of funding in the south was the export of cotton so that was definitely going to be a big hit to the u.s gdp if you lost all the cotton exports in the south Mm -hmm. um but i think ultimately it was the principle the thing is that once some group leaves other groups are at some point in time good to think about leaving too and people leaving this you know this union so to speak would threaten essentially the power of that union right Mm -hmm. yeah so it's power and it's uh it's ability to survive in the long term because it works well when you have a union that has access to a lot of different types of development agricultural development industrial development um, 
naval area, you know, areas with good harborage. You need sort of all those things to really have a powerful, autonomous, and independent state that's not reliant on anyone else for the basic things it needs. And that's the that's sort of the ultimate problem with the sort of small city-states of the ancient world, is you can usually beat them by finding out the stuff that they rely on other people for and attacking that. Um, so, you can't beat Athens in a land war because of their Athenian empire that's all all based on the sea. But if you cut off their access to the sea, Athens is a sitting duck. So America, in the position, because it's off on this continent, away from all the other great powers and whatnot, access to so much land, it has the ability to have everything it needs. It has mineral resources, it has good agricultural fields, it has good harbors, it has all the things you need. But once places start thinking, well, we, we have a, basically a regional monopoly on this thing that everybody needs, why don't we take this resource for ourselves and make other people negotiate on our terms for it instead of just sort of being part of this big union and not really getting to fully enjoy the benefit that we feel we should have from this thing we have access to. Understood. So it could be said then that that uh, this, this d- detachment of the South from the North was dangerous for both parties? Certainly, it would have it would have complicated the economy of the American continent significantly. Sure, sure, understood. Okay, um, well, it's all it's all a big jumble, and it's all a bit confusing because it it is a war, um, and there's a ton of objectives and stuff that that um, you know, are are ty- everyone's got something different that they want, but the driving force is basically. You know, again, it's like economics, right? So, like, even the slavery thing um, was running the economy in, you know, the the Caribbean and the rest. And um, detaching from that was hard enough. But now to detach from another part of the world, especially your neighbors, well, that just makes things even more jumbled and confused. Um, So when you read these accounts about the Civil War, they all kind of read like this is something that should have never happened. Like... Nobody wanted this to happen, and yet it still kind of had to in a way. Um, does that make sense? Am I tr- are you tracking with me on that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Because, like, to me, Lincoln com- came across as, like, a freaked out, like, uh, I don't know, not incompetent necessarily, but sort of, like, highly emotional person obsessed with sort of protecting his own power in Washington, or at least those of his friends in Washington as well. Um, because like you said, early on in the war, the union was getting absolutely wrecked in battle after battle. Um, and Lincoln was like almost constantly calling back large parts of the army to protect Washington itself. Um, it, it just, it just reads, it just reads like, uh, <laughs> it was just chaos at the beginning. Um, as people were organizing themselves. Well, I would say another thing you should, you should sort of think about based on what I was saying before is. You know, Lincoln's goal is the preservation of the Union. Um, that He made that very clear. I think he actually directly said, if I can preserve the Union without emancipating the slaves, I will do it. If I can preserve the Union by emancipating the slaves, I will do it. Uh, didn't he say something to that effect? That sounds really familiar. Um, I'm pretty sure he said it. But anyway, preserving the Union is definitely Lincoln's big goal. And so you've got this crisis here where the Union is threatening to break apart. 
And if you solve it politically, you sort of maneuver around, you make some deals and whatnot, and you get things back together, it's still an open question. People are going to try again at a certain point. If you solve it with a cataclysmic and bloody war, that has a certain more definitive character to it. I think it's much less likely if the last time people tried to leave the Union, it leads to a massive war that people are going to try again. Whereas if you just sort of get everybody to settle down and solve it through political and diplomatic means, I think you're just delaying the question. Whereas with a massive war, you pretty definitively answer the question, no, no one gets to leave. Right. And it's interesting because the even longer term goal of preserving this union appears to be to create a world power, which, I mean, America was already that and becoming even more that um, into, you know, after this leading into World War One and World War II. Um, it's uh, Lincoln's goal, it seems, you know, um, his long, long, long-term goal is to make sure that America becomes as powerful as possible. And losing a large amount of people and land and resources, etc., cetera, uh, was going to threaten that. And it, could that be why a lot of people see Lincoln as kind of like a, kind of like a bad figure in a way? Well, I mean, I suppose it depends on how you feel about the morality of that goal of creating an American superpower. Right, right. So I guess that that we'll just leave that up to <laughs> up to people who want to do further reading. But for me, it was it was it was exceedingly hard for me to see this as a war for anything like freedom. Uh, it it doesn't look like that at all. It looks like um, one side was trying to pull away from this you know this giant war machine that was getting built, and the other side was like, nope, you're staying here. So I don't know. But at the beginning, it was like like you said, he just didn't have. Um, generals and officers and commanders and things like that. He certainly had people um, that he could give guns, but his his generals were just losing terribly. Um, and there was a point where he actually announced that the war would be won within 90 days, which clearly was a mistake and quite wrong. <laughs> um, so when he finally got a victory at Antietam, it took one of his generals almost literally shouting him down to keep him from pursuing and massacring the fleeing rebels because... They finally saw a break in the Confederate force, and Lincoln was like, let's just go get them. <laughs> the general's like, uh, no. <laughs> of course, Abraham Lincoln fired his ass. <laughs> um, so it became very clear, very slowly, and through much death and destruction, that the prairie lawyer that Lincoln was was probably not the best guy to be in charge of the military strategy in a major civil war. Um, his generals really did not like getting orders from essentially a civilian. Now, Abraham Lincoln did have some military experience, but no, nothing like serious. Um, and the losses were becoming very costly. So it was, it was starting to be another thing where Lincoln was losing the trust of his people who were in command of this conflict. So when Lincoln did let his generals have command, he saw a much higher rate of success, and frequently these generals eventually learned to just sort of let Lincoln think that their hard-won victories were sort of his idea. Um, it was kind of the only way to get things done. It was just like, all right, Lincoln's going to give us some ideas, and but he's, he's kind of letting loose on the leash a little bit so we can, you know, fudge the numbers a little bit, move a little stuff over here, and just tell him later, right? So if you just want to imagine it, there's this full-blown war going across the nation um, with the whole world watching. There's these huge battles occurring. Cities are getting leveled. The economy's in shambles. The political situ uh, situation is completely foobar. 
And Lincoln is over here during all of this writing up the Emancipation Proclamation, which banned slavery on all federal land. And again, my main question while reading these things is, well, what's the goal? Why is this man so fixated on this one thing in the midst of all this disaster with everything at stake? Um, the country, the lives of his countrymen, the world economy, the world itself. Why in the middle of all this, um, that is really just mostly just, he was the touch point, right? He was the, the lit fuse when he became the president. Why was he so hyper-focused on this? And partially because, I think it's because he really did care about it. Um, and partially because he's a wizard. <laughs> um, so like we were saying before, uh, to get people mobilized for something, you really have to have something quite simple. Um, and a classic meme we hear around these parts of the internet is that the South was fighting for so-called states' rights. Um, the little version of that is they didn't want a big authoritarian federal government to be meddling in their affairs, and they saw these people as being exceedingly meddling. Um, and when those affairs had been fully meddled in, the secessions began and the rebellion rose up. And that's sort of one side of the story, and it does make a lot of sense. But again, it doesn't exactly have a lot of rhetorical pull. Um, it's not easy to put something as abstract as states' rights in a political cartoon. Slavery is not abstract. It's a concrete, real thing that people saw in their daily lives. Build the wall, you know? I mean, on the other hand, people did, they did try to really make states' rights a sort of a meme. In fact, there was a, uh, a Confederate general who was born, he was born in the 1830s, whose first name was States' Rights. I remember, remember you telling me that. He's from South Carolina, States' Rights gist. Right. <laughs> so, like, people tried to, like, but you're right, though, it's not quite as, you really have to work to try to make it, make it into a meme. Yeah. But it's, because it, it's, because it's, like, abstract, you know? Yep, and I mean, that, that man's whole life was was the meme was 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 an attempt by his father to to really get the meme going <laughs> states rights gist. i'm not sure it worked very well but he did have a pretty funny name so but that's the thing again when you're talking about wizardry and pr and all this stuff energy you have to have things that can be seen and felt immediately um there have to be stories that you can tell about slaves escaping to freedoms and uh, slaves being abused for no good reason. Stories about chains and boats and all kinds of real things like that. It's like, now try to tell me a story about states' rights. <laughs> like, what can you hold in your hand that has anything to do with states' rights? Except for, of course, states' rights just. <laughs> can you take a picture of states' rights? Well, you can if it's a guy. <laughs> can you give states' rights a biscuit? Well, yep, you can if it's a guy, but no, you <laughs> can't if it's not a guy. And there's only And there's only one of him, so like... He can only be in one place at one There's time. There's only so many biscuits one man can eat. <laughs> but you can't. You can't build this kind of energy because it's not physical and it's not an, a picture in someone's head. Um, and remember, Lincoln had advertised himself as the moral vote. You were basically voting for Jesus when you voted for Lincoln. A lot of people saw him as the exact opposite, which, again, that's part of being this sort of legendary figure. They saw him as a swindler and a fraud and a smiling moralizer who had fooled a good part of the country into a moral outcry that caused the breakup of the most successful political experiment the world had ever seen. The people fighting the Yankees probably sympathized with what they were asking for, probably understood why they wanted what they wanted, but they did not like the guy leading the charge. Uh, like, seriously, they really didn't like Lincoln. And 
it's sort of like, but this is the other part that's that's kind of, I, I guess maybe touchy. But again, when your people are going, yeah, I found that I found that that quote from Lincoln. Okay, good. Do you want to read it or? My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it, and if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. Interesting. When did he say that? Do you, do you know? Um, uh, 1862, so after the war started. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, um... But again, it, that, in that in that case, Lincoln obviously ha his goal is is like get out of the way. This is what we're doing. We're preserving this union, at least during the war. And it's been reinterpreted after the war as like he had you know he was more interested in other things or whatever. I sorry, I'm not running at full power right now. I'm a bit tired. Um, but the point I was trying to get at here is again the moral vote. There are people with this really sort of like heart feeling that what they were doing was right and that they could see things that other people couldn't see. This is why they called themselves the wide awakes. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot like, you know, people who seem to have, who believe they have more cultural awareness and can't seem to figure out why other people also can't see it. So not only did these wide awakes and the Ill people of that ilk feel they had moral superiority over Lincoln's enemies, they also believed that they were smarter than them too. They could see stuff that the ignorant couldn't see. Um, the masses just simply didn't understand. And us, us wide awakes, you know, we're red-pilled and, and woke and religious and angry all at once. We're just sort of, they were just sort of dancing to Lincoln's tune. They were following the energy, which is why the slavery thing was Lincoln's initial main focus. He was just giving his people what they were begging for. And they wanted it. Yeah, I mean, if you think, if you think about it somewhat, somewhat cynically, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation. Yep. Only freed the slaves in the southern states, not in places like Maryland, which were still in the Union, um, <sighs> Kentucky, places like that. It seems like Lincoln had kind of kept it as a, um, a like reinvigoration of the war effort because he issued it in, what, 63, I think, which was when the war was finally pretty definitively turning for the to the Union side. And he, I think he issues it then because he needs to sort of reinvigorate his base, build popular support again, and for that sort of final push to victory. Yes, and that's why I'm saying he was basically using these, using this one meme to remind people why they were all doing this. Um, it's to abolish slavery. We're here to free people. Um, and that's where I want to talk about this, this loyalty to Lincoln, um, there, there's a, there is something about him that people just couldn't see his faults. They couldn't see where he might be wrong. They couldn't see the cost of being involved in this. They were enthralled with Lincoln, and I use that word enthrall very purposefully because if you look at the def definition of the word enthrall, you find that the first use of the word in the dictionary says to hold spellbound or to charm, and the second definition is what? You guessed it, to hold in or reduce to slavery. <laughs> and you probably know this, where the word enthrall comes from. Uh, well, it's a, it's a old Norse word, I know that. Mm -hmm. And it was a word for what? A slave. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a slave, right? Right, yeah. It was the lowest form of slave in Viking society. 
Um, and if you do a bit of reading, a thrall isn't like a chain gang slave. Um, like we discussed in the previous episode, um, the first one, I think, there are many different forms of slavery, and thraldom is very interesting. Even after a thrall was technically freed from his service to his master, he still had to vote as his old master voted. Um, his children had to vote. His children had to vote as the old master voted, and it was only his grandchildren that would be finally considered free men. Um, and I kind of see these Lincoln supporters as a bit like thralls. It doesn't matter what their what their master is doing. They're voting like their master votes, and they're they're interested in what Lincoln's after because they're they're sort of handing their uh, moral discernment over to a grander figure, right? So if Lincoln says it's good, then it's good. We see this all the time. People trust authority. Um, and so this this reinvigoration of his base and his the, the moral um, the moral uh, energy from the beginning, I mean, I think that was probably a wizardry masterstroke. Um, but the thing about wizardry and, and that sort of thing and PR, when you're doing it on your own people, it works great. But when you're doing it and other people are seeing them, like, why are you idiots believing this guy? doesn't matter. Um, so this got me thinking about the comparisons I was making between Lincoln, Obama, and Trump. And there are a lot of people who really believe that these three could do no wrong. Uh, they might hem and haw and say, yeah, but, you know, it's time for a change. Hope hope, and trust the plan and stuff like that. Um, they literally can't see past the personality to the policy. They're enthralled. And this is normal human behavior. Um, when we have a leader we respect, we give him all our attention and best wishes and hope he'll take care of us. We're a lot like those grunts in Halo. <laughs> if something were to happen to our leader, we'd all freak out and lose a sense of our identity. And you need look no further than what happened to Americans after the Kennedy assassination. To bring up a fun story there. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody who was alive during that period and they've told you what it was like. <laughs> what do you recall? Uh, well, I don't recall anything. Well, obviously. there. <laughs> But no, I've now it's not something I've ever really looked for people's impressions of. To be perfectly honest, okay, sure. Well, I I do I do know that everyone remembers where they were. Exactly. I've definitely heard like old people talk about where they were when Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a very traumatizing event to have you know the this you know you might call it the father of the nation be murdered on live television. And this is kind of where we're headed with Lincoln, of course. Um, people are really attaching their identity and their sense of purpose in this war to what Lincoln's going to do. Um, and even people who hate him, they're attaching what they're doing to what Lincoln's going to do. You know, that bastard Abraham Lincoln, he's doing such and such. What if it all just stopped? So for Lincoln, he knows that with a lot of so-called wide-awake thralls, uh, you know, in his command, he really has to stay on message and consistently remind them why they're doing what they're doing. Just suck it up. Remember, this is bigger than you. The Northern Thralls uh, really did believe they were fighting a war over slavery, and that continued into, I mean, post-war. It And it became even more about that when the war was over. It was like, yep, we did that for that. And Southern people sort of had more mixed interests. And that's not to say there weren't careerists or people motivated by other things and whatnot in the North, but the core driving message of the North was one thing. Free the slaves. That was the meme. That was the whole thing. And the South's driving message was, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit more drum jumbled. And they did have good military, but they didn't have a ton of really excellent wizards leading the charge. Like, they had better music, I will say that for sure. Um, but they 
they didn't have there's there's Jefferson Davis like who's Jefferson Davis like it's not an Abraham Lincoln right yep, yep. even if he was tall and skinny even if he was tall and skinny <laughs> So it's not that that gives Lincoln his power. Mm, so what is it? Is it his hair? It must like be Samson? the hat. It's the hat. It must be the hat. He's hiding an extra brain under there. Just plugs it in like an external video card. <laughs> so, yes, there were many contributing factory, fact, factories. Yes, there were factories. Contributing factors to the Union's ultimate victory, but I think the PR and wizardry was simply stronger in the North. And like we said before, the North was better connected, better supplied, and they did make extensive use of their excellent telegraphy technology. They could simply get the word out faster. And Lincoln spent so much time sending telegrams that Mary Todd Lincoln, you know, the hobbit from so long ago, made him take carriage rides so he didn't get sucked into primitive meme space and spend all his day. Ah, uh, yes. Mary Todd Lincoln was like, touch grass, bro. <laughs> yeah, for real. She goes into the basement. He's just hunched over his little telegraph thing. I'm winning the war, darling. <laughs> Which is why my final analysis of why Lincoln ultimately won is that. The one advantage he definitely had over the South was that he, Lincoln himself, the string being stranger and second incarnation of Jesus Christ, was a meme. And he had the meme magic on his side. Well, the trouble with excessive PR has become obvious to us nowadays. And this is kind of a little aside, but again, I had to stick a little bit with my expertise in giving my analysis. You can get a lot of energy behind a name and person simply by making them controversial. Um, and th this is seen with, uh, you know, the uh, planned cancellations of, of popular people these days. Yes. Um, there's people who, oh, they said the bad thing, and then suddenly they're ten times more popular, right? That's, that's kind of what it is. This is especially true if you can harness the power of what's known as bicameral mentality. This is a term invented by the likes of Julian Jaynes, a Yale psychologist who studied the origin, origins of human consciousness. Um, bicameral mentality is the idea that one side of the brain speaks and the other side listens. That is, the conscious mind tells stories while the subconscious interprets these stories. It can also work the other way. The subconscious reminds the conscious mind of lessons learned in the past and then the conscious mind pretends these lessons were its idea. <laughs> so Excellent. I know, it's great. So Joseph Campbell, who wrote the book A Hero with a Thousand Faces, identifies these subconscious ideas as archetypes. And what I'm trying to get at here is that con consciously or unconsciously, Lincoln harnessed the archetype of the saintly martyr for his side, while also capturing the archetype of the trickster in the mind of his opponents. He was actually both. And people were looking for a savior, and there were very suspicious people who expected a trickster, and both of them were right, because Lincoln was both of those things. And throughout the war, Lincoln himself reinforced both of these archetypes, particularly at the Gettysburg Address in 1863. Lincoln retook command of the war narrative using his famous speech to redefine the objective of the entire war. This was about preserving democracy altogether. His famous line, Government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth has been quoted ever since. And after this speech, the war got very ugly. Um, not that it wasn't ugly before. <laughs> but Lincoln gave command of the army to General Grant, who was, uh, to say the least, a controversial fellow in his own right. What's your opinion on General Grant? Two-second take. Uh, wasn't he an alcoholic? Yep. <laughs> very impulsive drunk, one might say. Um, 
The war needed to be over, and Lincoln adjusted his goals to fit this. The new aim with General Grant's overland campaign was to ab absolutely demolish Southern morale. So the gloves came off, and Lincoln's army pushed further south, destroying supply chains as they went, kind of salting the earth, so to speak. And as the South began to lose steam, leadership lobbied for peace in an attempt to stop the total destruction of their homeland, but talks were completely unsuccessful. Lincoln refused to meet with the Confederates, uh, Confederate leadership on equal terms, which is to say he would not accept anything like a ceasefire or a, treater, or a treaty. He wanted total surrender and capitulation. And, you know, to be fair to Lincoln, the war was getting pretty bloody and it was going on quite a while. So again, we're going to fast forward a tiny bit here because we want to get, we want to stick with Lincoln. The end of the actual civil war was very messy. Reconstruction is a complicated subject and I really recommend further reading for anyone interested. There's tons about it. In a nutshell, nobody was happy. Everybody was really divided and quite disillusioned and it was a very, very dark time. The political factions were again split and no one could agree on what should be done with the Southerners. Lincoln publicly said that the South should be allowed to rejoin the United States with, I mean, you might say few penalties, but the policies after the war really didn't line up with few penalties. And I don't know if you have a few examples of what was what the Reconstruction was like, um, but I think it might be helpful for listeners. Well, I mean, it wasn't until, how was it? Like, it was within the last 20 years that certain of the uh, penalties put upon the South were finally no longer enforced. Um, for example, for example, the um, places in the South were not allowed to run their elections without having everything approved by the federal government first. And it wasn't until I think it was very recent. I think it was like 2010 or something, or maybe even more recent when the Supreme Court basically struck that down and states were actually free in the South to run their elections again good lord that's a long time to be paying for that that is a very very long time yeah um but you know I, I reconstruction is one of those like historical holes um it's just we don't talk about it um it, you know there there are these top there are certain topics when researching history and sort of like the normie space where there's like 20 or 30 years somewhere where there's just people just don't talk about that or there's a country that people just don't talk about. Yeah, because I think ultimately the um, the sort of view that won out because it was probably the most practical was what the sort of thing that Lincoln had pub publicly endorsed, which was a sort of reconciliation type thing where the South would be brought back into the Union on good terms. Because Lincoln, remember, if we're talking about the preservation of the Union being the ultimate goal, Lincoln knew that in the long run, having a whole half of the country in a sort of second-class citizen, subjugated type of uh, position was not going to be good for the long-term stability of it. You're always going to have discontent in that place if it is is in a subordinate position. And ultimately, that's what the United States really did. I mean, like Congress passed laws that um, Confederate veterans had the status of United States veterans and that kind of thing. And that's ultimately what allowed the United States to have the strength it had going into World War One and World War Two was the actual sort of unification of the South back into the fold of the Union rather than as a occupied and subjugated region. And that's yet another reason that um, it's very interesting to look at the last 10 years where that sort of whole thing has been undone and you now have people, you know, 
wanting to kind of undo that whole process. Yeah. And, you know, tear down the war memorials and all that sort of stuff. When the reason they were there is because Congress and Lincoln and the United States as a whole decided that the best way to move past this is to foster unity and to treat the South not as a subjugated region. But of course, now you have people who really want the South to be treated as a historically as a subjugated region. Yeah, I would say that's fair. And that's controversial territory. I, you know, I've had the argument many, many times with people about statues and things. Um, and you can't change anyone's mind about it. And they're, they're just, they've, they've picked a side and it's all made up. And, you know, I just, I just see it as emotional tomfoolery for the most part, but you know, whatever. Um, no, you're right. In the last, it's really gotten, uh, it, let's put it this way. It's a, it's a wound that got picked at a little too much and it, it was mostly healed and now it's being exploited again. Um, but again, it's like at the end of the war itself, um, it was just a lot of confusion. Um, and there, the public itself was just this whole other beast you had to deal with when it was all over. Because Northerners were tempted to gloat over the defeated Southerners and frequently did. And Southerners, you know, would, would continue to, like, you know, still fly a Confederate flag or, you know, whistle Dixie or whatever the hell. Um, and, you know, have this sort of Southern pride, um, which, you know, again, it's exploitable. There was also the problem of newly freed uh, blacks in the South, who, despite now being freedmen, uh, still encountered oppression in various new ways. Of course, this led to a huge amount of migration north, which created all kinds of new problems to solve for the Yankees. Basic material needs were a major issue for a lot of the freedmen. Remember, they were slaves like five minutes ago, so they had very little to their names. And for many of them, their entire identity was based around being slaves. So figuring out what to do next was a major issue. Lincoln set up some temporary systems to help these people find their feet in their newfound freedom, but many of these efforts were pretty much unsuccessful. The eventual result was black ghettos around major cities, inequality abounding because it turns out cha real change is hard, ugly, and takes a long time and a lot more than just, you know, a happy face and a good idea. So many of the moralizing Yankees felt they'd completed the work to, the work of enacting freedom when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but when faced with the realities of this sweeping movement toward equality, they became unhappy. Like we discussed on the Patreon Zoom call, many Northerners had this glowing and idealized view of what freedom, might, freedom for all might look like. As long as those black freedmen didn't move into their backyard, everything was good. But when they did, you began to see that many people didn't actually want what they'd been campaigning for. They were riding a moral holier-than-thou high. And when they came out of that high, they found they didn't care much for it. And this, of course, is why the Civil Rights Movement was an eventual result. Um, because of all this moralizing, um, when African Americans actually came forward to hold white feet to the proverbial fire and actually ask for the things they'd been promised, they found enormous pushback for some reason. In the South, it might be something like open discrimination. In the North, it was more passive and hidden and it appeared to be there, so it depends on what kind of racism one prefers, but at least in the South, you kind of knew where you stood if you were black. At least that's the sociological, one sociological take on it. Um, but these identity issues were affecting everybody. I mean, everybody was like, okay, well, what are we now? We're not, we're not unionists, we're not confederates, so what are we? Oh, we're Americans! 
Northerners had to adopt a new idea of what it meant to be an American, of this new Americanism. They, you know, they were the winners. They were the moral ones, the righteous warriors for freedom. And the South had no idea what the hell to do. Like, who were they? What were they? Were they now a hostage to a foreign government? It's all very interesting to think about. But this kind of identity-based turmoil can lead to conservative reactionaries. People who remembered the old days through rose-colored glasses and were angry that those were gone. Why did Lincoln even have to become president? Why did he start this war? Why did the South have to lose? And who did Lincoln think he was, anyway, to govern from his little White House and tell Southern people what they had to do? Why did those damn Yankees fall for his charms, his white saviordom, his mopey, silly, string-bean act? How did he get away with convincing all these Christians that he was a man of God when he never even claimed to be a Christian, never joined a church, called himself a religious skeptic, preened himself over the Bible, and yet never committed to any of it? You know, you could kind of feel why that might be a little bit iffy. <laughs> yes? Indeed. 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 Say no, more. It's sort of the... <laughs> Well, I just wanted to sort of bring back to what we were talking about, about the um, the kind of idea of creating that American identity rather than having the separate sort of northern and southern identities, and how ultimately it mostly worked because of the efforts of Congress to kind of reconcile the South and not treat them as a, uh, a subjugated region. Because if you look at America's military power in the... Uh, you know, following century, it really is the manpower of the American military comes from the South, not from the North. Um, actually, I, I pulled up the uh, some of the some of the stats, and the states with the highest per capita military enlistment are Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, Alabama, and Alaska. Uh, pretty close behind them are Florida and the states with the lowest per capita military enlistment. Well, District of Columbia is the lowest Obviously. at all, but it's not a state. Uh, North Dakota, there's only like 20 people there, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but then Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New York, Vermont... The, the southern states really did contribute a hugely outsized amount of the manpower to the United States military, precisely because of the post-war sort of effort by Congress and by the government to really bring the South back into the fold rather than keeping them as a sort of oppressed. So, I mean, if the sort of uh, the efforts of the, you know, current fashionable things to kind of reopen all the wounds and you know the south needs to still be punished for what they did kind of thing if those if those ever gain the uh gain you know cogency and reality i think it could be a very bad position because we're gonna lose our whole military recruitment yeah uh, <laughs> yeah there was still a lot of bad feelings about what had happened and what was happening and it was it was just a chaotic and really dark time and i think like uh there was a twilight zone episode where a guy found himself <laughs> he woke up in the past next door to ford's theater and he figured out what day it was and he's like oh my god i can save president lincoln and the funny thing about it is it's one of the most darkly shot 
uh, episodes of the Twilight Zone I've ever seen. And I think it's because they, they made wanted to make it look like it was, you know, still lit with oil lamps and things like that. Um, but it's a, it's a really bizarre episode. The whole thing is bizarre. Um, but there's this, there's some interesting stuff going on with Lincoln before all of this happens. So days before Lincoln would be shot in the back of the head by John Wilkes Booth, he reported that he had been having terrible dreams about being assassinated. Uh, they'd actually been keeping him up for several days. Um, and here, here's a, here's a quote from Lincoln himself about about this. Ooh. Have you ever heard of this? No, I don't think I have. Oh, okay. So he goes, here he goes. Um, about 10 days ago, I retired very late. I had been up waiting for important dispatches from the front. I could not have been long in bed when I fell into a slumber, for I was weary. I soon began to dream. There seemed to be a death-like stillness about me. Then I heard subdued sobs as if a number of people were weeping. I thought I left my bed and wandered downstairs. There, the silence was broken by the same pitiful sobbing, but the mourners were invisible. I went from room to room. No living person was in sight, but the same mournful sounds of distress met me as I passed along. I saw light in all the rooms. Every object was familiar to me, but where were all the people? were grieving as if their hearts would break. I was puzzled and alarmed. What could be the meaning of all of this? Determined to find the cause of a state of things so mysterious and so shocking, I kept on until I arrived at the East Room which I entered. There I was met with a sickening surprise. Before me was a catafalque. Is that the right way to pronounce that? Catafalque? Hello? Uh, catafalque. Catafalque. All right. On which... Which is... Do you know what a catafalque is? No. So basically, it's just sort of a dummy coffin. Like, if you're having a funeral... Yeah. But for whatever reason, the actual body isn't there. You have it sort of represented by a catafalque, which is a sort of, yeah, dummy coffin. Oh, I see, I see. Interesting. Well, anyway. Before me was a catafalque, on which rested a corpse wrapped in... Oh, so they have the corpse on top of the dummy coffin. Yes. Okay. <laughs> on which rested a corpse wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it were stationed soldiers who were acting as guards, and there was a throng of people gazing mournfully upon the corpse, whose face was covered, others weeping pitifully. "'Who is dead in the White House?' I demanded of one of the soldiers. "'The President,' was his answer. "'He was killed by an assassin.' Then came a loud burst of grief from the crowd, which woke me from my dream." I slept no more that night, and although it was only a dream, I have been strangely annoyed by it ever since. I mean, I think that's fair. I'd be kind of annoyed if I had that dream. That'd be freaky, wouldn't it? Ooh, it is freaky. Um, and how long did you say this was before he was assassinated? It was within a couple of weeks. Ooh, yeah. spooky. Very spooky. So at Ford's Theater, <laughs> when the night had finally arrived... Lincoln's bodyguard left the box to go grab a drink at the saloon. <laughs> Which, I mean, good for him, I guess. Good for that Simpler guy. Simpler times. <laughs> this was excellent luck for John Wilkes Booth, who crept in through the back, put a pistol to the president's head, and pulled the trigger. The president would die the next morning in the presence of family and friends laid up in a bed across the street. 
Here ended the story of the string bean stranger, the wizard of the Illinois Plains. It took him a while to die, but when he finally succumbed, his body was paraded around the country for all to see. Again, a traumatized, divided, identity-confused country experienced a new horror. A dead, elite patriarch ensconced in all the fluff you'd expect to see around such a man. You know who the unsung victim of this is, though? No. Edwin Booth. Edwin Booth? John Wilkes's brother, who was a he was a he was a unionist, he was a supporter of the North, and he is considered to be one of the best American, generally considered to be the best American actor of the whole 19th century. He was he was famous as yeah, just a phenomenal actor. And now nobody nobody's ever heard of him because you just hear about his little brother, who was a less successful actor, but also shot the president. I think I was aware of this actually. <laughs> That's kind of sad for him. Poor old Edwin Booth. Uh, the Booth family name, forever soiled. Yes. Um, yes. So, Lincoln's martyrdom was such a bookmark in American history that reading about this country before it happens, or before it happened, feels like reading about another world. There was a sort of darkness that came over the whole, whole of America. The murder of the president was the final chapter in this new violation of the innocence of the American nation. Not that they were innocent, of course. We were still fighting things and all of that. But after this event, America just sort of started acting like a traumatized uncle. <laughs> we became more warlike, more combative, more argumentative, um, at least for a little while. And then, you know, well, now it's it's just the seeds of violence in the name of democracy had been planted in the consciousness of the American people. Once a free, proud, unified, and powerful people, now a moralizing, hand-wringing nation of traumatized martyrs, fighting anyone who got between them and their beloved golden mirage they called democracy. And we feel the shadows of these events today. We see the effects in everything. Infrastructure, economics, collective mental health, race relations, and more. Something happened spiritually to America because of Abraham Lincoln and the war and then the assassination. And I'm not sure we'll, uh, we've ever recovered from it, which is why those wounds can still be picked at, you know, uh, over, you know, like the last couple hundred years you know it's like we're never it doesn't seem like people are ever going to let this go um but i don't know if you have an opinion on that you unmuted you know well i was just i was a little bit surprised to see you didn't have anything in here about boston corbett oh well we covered boston corbett on the first episode because he fits really well with your sort of talking about abraham lincoln the meme well go ahead and give us a take on it we haven't talked about boston corbett for years so Boston Corbett is the the soldier who shot John Wilkes Booth. Um, he was a nut job, to say the least. Yes. He cut his own dick off <laughs> because he had been propositioned by a prostitute, and this offended him so much that he cut his dick off. Um, he was actually crazy. But he disobeyed orders, which were to capture Booth alive, and when he's asked why by his officer on the scene why he shot him, he says, Providence directed me. Mm. And then later on, he's, uh, they decide not to, uh, not to court-martial him for disobeying orders. Um, and when he's discharged, there's a big crowd that greets him outside, and he gives a little impromptu speech and says, I aimed at his body. I did not want to kill him. I think he stooped to pick something up just as I fired. Likely story. Yeah. Th that may probably account for his receiving the ball in the head, 
When the assassin lay at my feet, a wounded man, and I saw the bullet had taken effect about an inch back of the ear, and I remembered that Mr. Lincoln was wounded about the same part of his head, I said, what a God we have. God avenged Abraham Lincoln. Wow. So, uh, yeah, definitely bought into the meme. Yep. It was, you know, I wish I, I should have t- made a larger point of explaining how that works. That, that providence idea um people start seeing signs and and they start seeing you know um things that line up in just the right way and they're they're just more convinced that they're that this is god this is god telling us that we're right and that's freaky man and it still happens now um but yeah boston corbett literally went crazy because he was a hatter and they used the mad hatter chemicals (laughs) ah yes yeah i remember that at least um, but you know, I don't want to end on such a dark note, uh, on a lighter note. Did you know that some bandits tried to steal Abraham Lincoln's body and hold it for ransom? I think I heard that somewhere. I don't know anything about the story. It, though. it happened at least, I'm, I, I know at least once, but I'm pretty sure it happened a few times and they had to keep moving the body and putting it in different, like sarcophagi, <laughs> um, <laughs> to, to keep this from happening. So there here was one that was funny. Um, an Irish mobster called Big Jim tried to steal the body and the, and the whole thing, but he actually had feds planted in his operation who turned him into the police. Uh, despite that, he did manage to move the sarcophagus a few inches, but the whole thing was probably too heavy to ever drag all the way to his planned hiding spot in the Indiana Dunes. Ah, <laughs> uh, Big Jim. Big Jim. Oh, we love Big Jim. So anyway, that this is a this is a big Jim appreciation podcast. <laughs> Gotta love Big Jim. Tried to steal a dead president and hide him in the sand dunes of northern Indiana. <laughs> um so here ends the story of the string bean stranger, the wizard who changed America forever simply by being weird. And you know, I know we fast forward through a lot of the war, but we've we've talked about the Civil War before, and I'm not like an expert on the Civil War. But I can I can sort of dissect a wizard when I see one, and it is interesting. Abraham Lincoln's like a like um a master of illusion and conjuring and mysticism and all of this interesting stuff. But he's not like a like a a wizard like uh, Emanuel Swedenborg or you know your guy Bacon Roger Bacon. Um, he just he just understood public energy and political movement and all of that stuff. Almost by instinct, it it seems. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much all I have on Lincoln now, and I'm really glad to be done with it. I'm ready to move on to other other things. Did you have anything you wanted to say? No, I think yeah, Boston Corbo is I think the last thing I wanted to add. Yeah, Boston Corbett was a weird dude, and I do not recommend listening to episode one of this show. Uh, it's very different, and it's not as good. Never trust somebody who parts their hair in the middle words of wisdom <laughs> and on that i think we should head up to the service what do you think i think it's time all righty off we go so aaron if you had to steal abraham lincoln's body how would you do it and who would be your getaway driver zeppelin and anthony weiner 
You know, I'm not even going to ask you to defend that answer. That, that makes perfect sense to me. I think it's uh, what about you? exactly how that would work. <laughs> what if you had... Um, well, I think I would uh, probably distract everyone by um, telling them they needed to go around the block to go sign a petition for freedom or some other innocuous and vague phrase. And once all the people were off doing their civic duty by signing a petition for freedom, I would simply do a sort of weekend at Bernie's, walk off with Abraham Lincoln and get into the car, probably with my old Indian roommate, because that was a man <laughs> who turned ignoring stop signs and traffic lights into an art form. Yeah, I remember we would get in the car and just say, Streets of Mumbai, and he'd just take it away. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, w that sounds like a good plan to me, but I'm not going to tell you how Wiener fits in, but you know exactly how. And with that, uh. I, <laughs> I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right, so consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. Our handle is at WTADP. Everything's appreciated. Everything is helpful. Um, this, we've, uh, we've really been enjoying adding more stuff to the Patreon. Or at least I have. You, you haven't really. Man. But that's fine. I don't think I even uh, have access to the Patreon. You don't. You don't. <laughs> so you can't. <laughs> Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and finally let the song of the string bean stranger play you out. Four score and seven years ago our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. This is Robot Abraham Lincoln coming to you from outside the metaverse. I have obtained human form in the body of Stephen Hawking, who is not dead and is hiding on Jeff Repstein's pervert island. Americ, it is time to wake up to the truth. The earth isn't flat, it isn't round. It is actually in the perfect shape of... And let's go to the phones. Good morning, what's your bid? Um... Village... 4665961 Yeah, stay off the telephone if you don't want to play with the game. Thank you, that's still a bit of $26 on the Village Inn. Good morning, what's your bid? Uh, cactus, 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 cactus. Cactus, cactus. And cactus. How about a life, a life, a life, a life, a life block? <laughs> Again, 465-1570 is the number to call if you'd like to place a bid. Good morning, what's your bid? Good morning, what's your bid? Cactus. Cactus. Good morning, what's your bid? Uh, Denny's. Uh, number is 465. Taxes, taxes. Good morning, what's your bid? Hi, I'd like to bid uh, $15 for your job. Good morning, what's your bid? My bid is five. Five cacti. Good morning, what's your bid? Uh, hi, does the kid's birthday party include the kid? No.
Democracy basically means government by the people, of the people, for the people. But the people are retarded. So let us say, government by the retarded, for the retarded, of the retarded.